All right, well, yeah, as Tom said, we're starting a new series this morning, but before we um, jump into Daniel, um, I want to talk about a little bit of time that I spent. A year after college, I lived in Kenya for a year in East Africa, um, and uh, so what I was doing there was my, my pastors in Missouri connected me with a missionary doctor who served there, and he was willing to take me in as a missionary intern, okay? Now, I use air quotes when I say missionary intern because uh, this was not through any sort of official organization, okay? I, uh, I raised 15,000 bucks and said, that'll probably get me through most of a year. I bought a plane, round trip plane ticket to Kenya, and I landed on the continent of Africa having never met a single person who lives there. And uh, for the next year, my friend, Dr. Scott Shannon, and I lived together. At the time, he was single. I was single. He had grown up in the Congo as a missionary kid and was like a total wild man. So we had all these great adventures. Um, and one of the things that we both loved was soccer. So in this little village where we, um, where we lived, we joined the soccer team, the local soccer team. I think we have a picture of it. This is Chagoria United. Okay, this is the team that we played on. And if you look really, really close, you may be able to pick out Dr. Scott Shannon and myself. But you got to look really close, okay? Look at the facial features and those sorts of things. Um, it was great. Uh, we'd travel around to the different towns. We would play them. You know, we'd have a, a party or a meal afterwards. It was a good time. Um, and then what he would do, what Scott would do, is basically farm me out to his missionary buddies all over the country. Um, and I would get to spend a month at a time in all these different organizations. So here I am with an orphanage that I worked with, again, playing soccer, um, because that is the universal language. Um, got to work in an orphanage, building projects, some famine relief stuff. I taught a high school science class way out in the middle of nowhere, which was like way overwhelming and over my head. Um, one month, I found myself in the far northwest corner of Kenya near Lake Turkana, where a, a people group called the Samburu tribe lived. All right. Now, this is a picture of the Samburu tribesmen. Um, all done up in their, you know, um, their fancy garb. This would be like a ceremonial sort of thing. It's not what they wore every day. They wore clothes like us. But this is like when they were really putting it on. And um, the, there was a group of missionaries out there who had been there for decades. And these guys were awesome. I mean, unbelievable stories of their time out there. And uh, they had built a church. They had helped with uh, agricultural development. They were building a school at the time that I was there. So I kind of pitched in where I could and tried not to mess too many things up. But uh, this was where I was that year when I had my birthday. And so my roommates, these Samburu tribesmen, gave me the honor of inducting me into the Samburu tribe. Okay? Now, you guys didn't know this, but uh, (laughs) I didn't put this on my resume, but I am actually a Samburu warrior. In training. In training. That part is very important. I didn't make it very far through my training. Don't trust me with that spear. I still have the knife thing that's on my belt there. Um, but they gave me the honor of, uh, of being an honorary member of their tribe. So that day we roasted a goat over an open fire. We enjoyed the day. Here are my two roommates uh, kind of on the right and some other folks who are... Yeah, the last one there. Yeah, some other folks involved in the ministry on the left. Um, Here's the thing. I absolutely loved my time in Kenya. It was a really formative year for me. I have great friends there. I'd love to go back. But here's the thing. No no, No matter how long 
I stayed in Kenya, right? No matter how much Swahili I learned, no matter how much I worked to adapt and integrate into the culture there, getting immersed in the music and the food and traveling on the local Matatu buses, which could be absolutely terrifying at times, um, no matter how much I lived like a Kenyan, I would always be an American, right? I would always be an expat in a foreign country. I wasn't from there, and I never could be from there. The fact that I was the whitest boy in Kenya that year um, was the first hint. But being a visitor and a guest in Kenya went far deeper than skin color. Uh, I spent the first 20 years of my life living in Midwest America, all right, in Missouri. Went to Mizzou. Um, I've been shaped by that place for decades, molded by a thousand ways, uh, molded in a thousand ways by American culture, American language, American family, and American church. And that formed me deeply in profound ways. And I would always be a citizen of another country, only visiting Kenya for a time, but eventually going back home. You see, everyone I met could tell right away, you aren't from around here, are you? You can dress like us, you can live like us, but, but you're not from around here, are you? And that difference went deeper than the color of my skin. Now, according to the Bible, we aren't from around here either, okay? The, the Bible calls all Christians, everyone following Jesus in faith through this world, resident aliens, living in a country away from home. Peter, in his letter in the New Testament, says that our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, see, we live in a world now for a time, for a season, but we carry a passport from a different country. We're all expats. No longer how integrated we become here, no matter how proficient we become at the language of the world, no matter how immersed we become in the music and the culture and the travel and the comforts here, no matter how much we love this place, we're all heading home eventually, back to our true country. We'll always be expats here bound for our heavenly country. Now, this is where any international traveling analogy inevitably breaks down. Because while I do love America, and I do, um, I'm under no illusion that America is somehow God's special heavenly gift to this world. Okay? In fact, I find any suggestions towards that direction inherently offensive to our brothers and sisters across the globe. Uh, So when you and I travel to another place and it's impossible to shake our citizenship and the formation and distinctiveness of our homeland, that's sort of just a morally neutral trade, right? I mean, that clash of cultures, it makes for funny stories. It makes for ridiculous pictures. It makes for Luke dressed up like a Samburu warrior. Um, But when God tells his children, his family, the citizens of his kingdom, that the way he's forming them and shaping them ought to make them distinct in this world, ought to make his church stand out in these unique and compelling ways. So people sort of look at us and say, you're not from around here, are you? That actually becomes a spiritual calling, okay? That's a calling from God while we live in this country. How do we live in a world that's not our home? How do we remain distinct yet engaged? Present in our place, yet faithful to our king? How do we avoid the temptations to either bow out, just check out, or to give in and become exactly like everyone else around us? We are starting a new sermon series this morning. 
in the Old Testament book of Daniel. And the reason I think that it's going to be good for our church to spend some time with this prophet and his friends is because you cannot ask for a better guide to those exact questions than Daniel. Daniel was part of a group of Jewish men and women who were captured by the Babylonians and taken into exile to their capital city, the city of Babylon. In 605 BC, the first waves of captives were taken to Babylon. Daniel was among them. And they didn't return until 537 BC. So for 70 years-ish, Daniel lived in exile. As a person with a foreign passport in a foreign land, he was an expat living there, but he wasn't from there. And a poet in Psalm 137 describes the exile experience. Listen to this. By the waters of Babylon, we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered our home. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And then the psalmist says, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That's Daniel's question. That's also our question, okay? How shall we sing the Lord's song in this foreign land? How do we worship him, honor him, witness to him, obey and delight in him in a world where God seems so hidden and so foreign, where suffering and difficulty and frustration are so prominent? How do we sing the Lord's song in the face of disease and divorce and depression and even death? How do we sing the Lord's song in a country of sadness and seduction and sin? Daniel helps chart the course. Okay, Daniel and his friends face nearly the exact same set of circumstances and pressures, a pluralistic, secular culture, the temptations that we do today, and, and the principles that governed his journey through that foreign land, the grace, the faith, the scripture, the prayer, the fellowship, the hope, all of that is the very same resources we need for our journey today. Daniel's like a survival manual for every Christian who has ever lived in this world. I'm convinced that this ancient book, it's one of the most relevant and applicable, timely pieces of scripture a modern Christian can ever read, okay? So as we jump into Daniel 1 this morning and get oriented to the book, um, there's one word from the first chapter that jumps out that I think really begins to help us answer that question this morning and to guide us into our calling as we live away from home. The word is resolve, all right? Resolve. So let's read the first couple of verses here of Daniel 1 and get situated. Daniel 1.1. 1, 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the, ve- the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and place the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, on first read, this just sounds like a lot of ancient names and a lot of ancient places and kind of a historical backdrop to the book of Daniel so that we can get into the good stuff, you know, like the lion's den happens soon and that hand that's writing on a wall, like that happens soon. This is super easy to pass over, but this is crucial. These first two verses are crucial to understand not only the book, But to understand our own lives today, because what's going on here is we see in these first two verses 
um, a way of understanding God and a way of understanding our lives that show us God's total resolve to keep his promises for our good. There are two views of history in these first two verses. Verse one is history from the ground, okay? Human history, history as we see it. Verse one talks about Nebuchadnezzar initiating the action. He goes into Jerusalem. He's the one who takes these people captive. He besieges it. He invades. He destroys it. Verse two tells the same story, but it's history from above, okay? This is the theological view. This is God's view. Um, it, says that, uh, it says that God was the one who initiated the action. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hands. See, and unless that we are able to hold both of these camera angles in view, um, we are going to have a very hard time living with hope and joy and purpose in this world. Uh, the passage that we looked at actually a couple weeks ago in Jeremiah 29 um, shows both these views of history even more clearly. So we read in verse 1, these are the words of a letter to all the people who Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile. Then in verse 4, thus says the Lord to all the exiles who I have sent into exile. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. So which is it? Does a foreign king violently relocate an entire nation? Or does God lovingly place his people exactly where he wants them to be when he wants them to be there? How can it be both? Which is it? Yes. The answer is yes. Okay. Uh, How can both of these explain the same event? The consistent testimony of the Bible is that everything that happens in this world is a result of God's good and loving reign, his sovereign kingly reign over everything, circumstances, places, people, events. Nothing is an accident because God is in charge. This doesn't diminish human freedom, okay? It doesn't diminish God's control. We think one needs to cancel the other one out, but the Bible uses both camera angles at the exact same time to explain the exact same events. And it happens all the time. So in Genesis 50, we read Joseph talking to his brothers, and he tells them that when they kidnapped him and sent him to Egypt, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. The very same event, two camera angles, okay? Humans acting, God in total control. In Acts 4, Peter is preaching after Pentecost, and he says, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So which was it? Was it humans out of control during the most evil thing that we've ever done in the history of the world? Or was it God sovereignly designing and lovingly saving his people by sending his son to the cross? Yes. Both camera angles explain the same event. Everything that happens in our world, whether good or bad, is a result of God's perfect plan. Wrap your head around that, all right? Why is Daniel in Babylon? Because God wants him there. And God even told him he would be there. A hundred years before Daniel, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 39 and said, I am going to send my people into exile. Oh, and by the way, some of them were going to be taken for service to the king of Babylon. God told his people a hundred years ahead of time this was going to happen. Daniel was in Babylon because God said he would be. And he wanted him there. Daniel was in Babylon because God is always true 
to his word because he's a sovereign king who's always in control and always working for the good of his people. Our circumstances in this world right now are not an accident. I don't know, I don't know what you're in the middle of, okay? Whether it's a season of joy and hope and excitement or if it's a season of hard and frustration and weariness, but wherever you are right now in your life is exactly where God wants you to be because he is in control of all things. That doesn't mean there's, that, that there, there aren't bad things about it, that there are evil things about it, that there are wrong things about it, things that we should be actively working to change, but it does mean that we have not fallen out of the hands of our loving and good king. Now, I realize this raises all kinds of difficult questions. If God's in control of all things, why should we pray? Can't possibly change his mind, can we? Why should we evangelize? He's going to save who he's going to save, isn't he? Why is there evil if he is in control of everything? Why is there suffering? Without nearly the time or the talents to unpack any of that this morning, I just want us to consider this, okay, before we move on. Consider how encouraging it is to know that nothing falls outside the hands of our Heavenly Father. All right, when life seems chaotic and frustrating and difficult and it's full of suffering, when our circumstances are anything but easy, there's really only three ways to look at it, okay? Either God doesn't exist and we're alone in a scary and a chaotic world. Not a good option, right? Okay, option number two, God does exist, but he's not really in control of all of the junk that happens here, right? And especially when things start to go really, really bad and, 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 and we're suffering, that's when um, his sovereignty and his, his reign over everything doesn't apply anymore. But what that means is life at, at its hardest, we're still alone and we live in a scary world. Also not a good option. Here's the third one. God does exist. He's sovereign over all things. And even though you and I can't explain how or why he makes the calls he does, we can trust that he's good because of everything else we know about him from his word. And that his promises are true, that we're not alone in a scary world, but that God has us exactly where he wants us for reasons we don't know. And he is at work in our lives, even if we can't hold it all together. I'll take option three every day, okay? And that's exactly what the Bible describes by giving us these two camera angles on reality. We know, Romans 8 says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. There will always be mysteries and complexities and greatness about God that we're not able to comprehend. But this is good news, okay? This beginning to Daniel, this uh, anchor for our time in this country away from home, this is good news. God has us exactly where he wants us for purposes we might not know, but we can know he's good and we can trust his care. All right. Nothing in this universe falls outside of his loving hands. And Daniel and his friends found great comfort in this truth as they encountered the very difficult prospect of following God in a foreign land. Babylon, after all, was a place very different from where they had grown up, okay? It was uh, a place full of differences. It was religious pluralism. It was secular. Uh, It was a lonely place to be. It could even be hostile to them as believers. 
they were called into a culture that was not their own. But honestly, they were called into a culture that sounds a lot like the culture that we've been called into. All right? Let me just read verses 3 through 7 of Daniel as we pick up our story. The king commanded Ashpenaz, it's a name right there, Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Now, when I taught this um, book to my college students at Northwestern, I said, you cannot get a more relevant book than this, okay? You take all the type A, bright, sharp kids in the country, you send them to the major city center of the area, and you enroll them in the top university there, and they're told to live faithfully and compelling lives for, as witnesses to Jesus, okay? And we're not so different. We're not so different. Uh, picking up in verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. They were all descendants of King David. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. All right. Uh, What we just read about was the assimilation project that Babylon put their captives through. Babylon's goal was to set up a scenario where everything pressured people and encouraged the people, these these foreigners in their nation, to forget about their true home and to fall in love with their new king more than the king of of their people, more than God. So what they did is they experienced isolation and loneliness. They took them away from their families, from their extended family, and, they, um, and their regular worship and their uh, support system, and they isolated them so that they would, have to char- they would have to live this life alone. Do you guys ever feel lonely living in this world, trying to follow Jesus? Like you're the only one who is trying to hear his voice among all the voices out there encouraging you in all kinds of different ways. Do you ever feel alone? They were also re-educated or reformed, okay? In all the language, the history, the stories, the policies of their new home, they were inundated with alternative stories about what life is about. New philosophies and new songs and new movies and new Instagram feeds that painted a picture of what true flourishing and real life was about that was different from the one God was calling them to. Well, luckily, that one doesn't apply to us, right? They were renamed. Daniel to Belshazzar, Hananiah to Shadrach, Mishael to Meshach, Azariah to Abednego. When I, get, when I say this story, uh, or especially the story of the lion's den, or I mean the, the fiery furnace with my kids, um, I, we finish the night by saying, and that is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. That's good, right? That's peak dad joke right there. All of their old names evoked the name of their own God. All of their new names evoked the name of Babylonian gods. They were being renamed so that their orienting center would be a different God than the one they left. So 
Our world is trying to rename us as well, okay? Instead of child of God, we are told that we are children of performance, right? That what makes us who we are, what gives us value and meaning isn't a, a loving, gracious invitation and adoption into God's family. It's what you produce. It's how well, it's what, it's what your output is at work. It's your wealth or your success. We're being renamed. Instead of forgiven, pure, loved, we're told our, our real name is damaged goods, too broken to fix, too guilty to heal, a lost cause. Instead of sent, commissioned, and empowered by the Holy Spirit himself, Our world whispers, no, the best life is comfortable, easy, low risk, path of least resistance, as long as you can get away with it and not look like a sack of lazy bones, right? That's where real flourishing is. We're being renamed after the gods of this world, just like Daniel and his friends. And finally, they were fed. Okay, verse five, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. Now, it's interesting that of all the places Daniel chose to make his stand, he chose it here. And we don't really know why. There's no, like, food purity law that outlawed, you know, um, the food that they were serving. He couldn't um, reference some subsection of the code of of the rules that he was supposed to follow. Um, And Daniel was willing to go along with so much of the other stuff. He was willing to go to their school, even be called by their name. He was willing to live where they asked him to live and serve in the kingdom that he was asked to serve in, the very kingdom that took over his own home. But through it all, he was able to remain distinctive. He was able to remain obedient. He was able to remain faithful. He was in Babylon, but he never became of Babylon. How did he do it? Here's how he did it, verse 8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. The word resolved can be translated, Daniel purposed in his heart not to eat the king's food. So the question is, why the food? If there's no particular violation that he was breaking, you know, 3.4b subsection a, like there was no rule that he was breaking by eating this food, why did he choose to draw the line there? And we don't know for sure, but there's something deeper going on here, something more subtle that required wisdom and conviction on his part. Here's how one author put it. We may never know why Daniel longed to avoid the decreed food rations, but Babylon was simply smothering Daniel and his friends. You ever feel smothered by the world we live in? Daniel may well have thought, here's the real danger. I could get sucked up into all of this. He recognized that if Babylon gets into you, The show is over. Hence, he had to draw the line at some point to preserve his distinctiveness, to keep from being totally squeezed into Babylon's mold. Daniel sensed, in other words, a tug at his heart that he knew would be spiritually dangerous, a compromise, not of just one rule, but of a a heart desire, a leaning towards the comfort and the ease and the good life that Babylon provided. And so what he did is he built into his day a daily habit of dependence on God at every single meal. Daniel's resolve was not to just pull himself up by his moral bootstraps and grit and bear it from whatever resources of strength he could find in himself. His resolve was to increase his dependency on the one who had brought him there. Uh, to, be, to, be, to trust that God would be always resolved to his own promises for the good of his people. And God gave him favor that day. 
And for decades to come, he grew in dependence and trust of God in a foreign land. We won't read the rest of it, but they do a 10-day vegetable test, okay? And uh, the, the steward takes away his food, and God gives him a healthier body as a gift of grace. There's no way he could have, uh, could have uh, you know, worked out enough to be the fittest guy in that room. It was a gift of grace from God, favor from him. And then picking up in verse, uh, well, we'll read verse nine real quick. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And then 17, as for these four youths, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. All right, as we close, what does this mean for us? What does all this mean for us? One thing it means is that a life of faith and worship and obedience in a foreign land is going to require some resolve, okay? It's going to require some some purposeful, intentional um, habits that lean us in the direction of dependency on God instead of leaning us in the direction of comfort and ease and the pleasures of this world. Greed in this world happens on its own in a consumeristic country. You know what doesn't happen on its own? Generosity. That has to be cultivated. Lust happens on its own. What doesn't just happen on its own is sacrificial, faithful love. That requires discipline and practice and resolve. See, following Jesus through this world will require intentionality with our money, our technology habits, our schedules, our relationships. It won't happen by accident. But if we stop there and just focus on the resolve of Daniel, go dare to be a Daniel, we're going to miss the whole point of this chapter and the whole point of this book. Because at the end of the day, Daniel is a book, just like every book in the Bible, about God's grace to his people long before we try to resolve to obey him in any sort of way. Uh, This chapter ends on a curious little historical note. I just read it, verse 21. Daniel lived until the first year of Sirius. Again, easy one to skip over if you're just reading through it. But the first year of Sirius was 70 years after this first account in Daniel's life. He was the king three kings later that Daniel had served. And he was actually the king who took the Persian king, who defeated the Babylonians, who ended up sending God's people back to their homeland in Jerusalem. So this throwaway line in verse 21 at the end of chapter 1 is actually an anchor of a promise. It is a certain future that God is promising he will usher Daniel through his time in that country. And he will promise to bring his people back to their true home after their time there is up. Daniel lived to see God keep his promise and bring his people back here, back home. Because God is resolved to remain faithful to every word, every promise that he has spoken through his word. What has God promised us? What are gospel promises that that the Bible are filled with that we can be certain God is resolved to keep 
on our behalf. That your shame will be taken away. That you will never be alone again. You will be made whole and complete, not lacking anything. That you will experience deep soul rest and be whole. That you will be adopted into God's family and never removed. God is resolved to keep his word in your life. No matter what it costs you, no matter where he takes you in the journey he brings you through, he is good, he is sovereign, and no matter what it costs him, he's willing to send his son to die to secure every promise that he gives his people. We will make resolutions with words and not follow through perfectly. God's word never fails. God's resolve never fails. And any effort that we put forward in this life is empowered by his faithfulness to us before we even try to be faithful to him. Let's close our, our time with a prayer. Uh, this is from 2 Thessalonians, where uh, Paul prays on behalf of his friend. And let this just be our prayer this morning as we close. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, not by your power, but by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.